I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. It's Martin Shipton, and today we've travelled to the House of Lords to meet Lord Alluston Morgan, who is Wales's oldest parliamentarian. He was the MP for Cardiganshire, and the fact that it's got that name rather than Ceredigion indicates how long ago that was, uh, between 1966 and 1974. And then a few years later, in 1981, he became a member of the House of Lords, and he these days regularly travels up from uh, Ceredigion on a weekly basis to the House of Lords, often participates in debates, and he has made a significant contribution over the years. As you'll notice, when we were recording the podcast, we had a bit of a tour around the House of Lords. A lot of members of the Second Chamber uh, do not have offices of their own, so we were having to meet uh, Lord Alaston Morgan in a number of locations where we got moved from, and uh, as you'll hear, we eventually ended up in a staff canteen. Thanks to the technical expertise of my colleagues, uh, it should be good enough for everyone to hear. It's Martin Shipton, and I'm with uh, Lord Alluston Morgan, who is the former Labour MP for Cardiganshire. The constituency was still called uh, when you represented it, uh, Alluston. Yes. Uh, Now you're a member of the House of Lords. But let's go right the way back. Where do you come from exactly? I know you're a Cardiganshire man. My, my father's people and my mother's people have been in the county for a very, very long time. My father is a very, very old, comes from a very, very old family. Yes, Cardito <clears throat> backbone. Yes, and was was that Aberystwyth itself, or I was born in Aberystwyth. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, as a young, uh, as, well, as a child, did you have any political aspirations at that stage, or when did they arrive? Oh, I was, I suppose, left-wing and nationalist from birth, I believe. (laughs) I can't ever imagine having another concept of life than one that was broadly in that direction. Did you have a family background uh, that was immersed in politics? Both my father and mother were very much progressive in in politics, but um, not actively involved, no. So what was it that drew you to the Labour Party? I had for many, many years been a member of Plaid Cymru and uh, the concept of Wales as a nation and the necessity of gaining some outward shell and protection for that organic thing that we call nationhood seemed to me to be absolute. I still think that. But whereas I thought at one time that the only way to achieve that was through Plaid Cymru, I realised pretty soon that what you needed really was the conviction coming from Plaid Cymru and the power coming someday from the Labour Party when it is in a situation to do something about it. It has to be the combination of both. Idealism alone is not enough. So as you say, you were uh, initially in Plaid Cymru for yes, many quite years. a long time. Yes, indeed. And I imagine that you were at one stage, were you on uh, good terms with Gwynne Evans? Oh, very much so. I still have great admiration for him. Did he see you as something of a protégé, do you think? He, he might have, yes. But there were, there were many yes, 
but we, we remained friends throughout, although we disagreed on, on many things, and I have absolute respect for his memory. What did he make of your decision to leave Clyde and join the Labour Party? He thought that I had been nobbled, and that no... He had, I'm afraid, a very low opinion of the Labour Party, a contempt of the Labour Party, and thought that only by some subterfuge and some utterly disorderly process could one gravitate to the Labour Party. He never accommodated the Labour Party at all. I remember speaking to him once about the matter, saying, but Quinmore, is there nothing in the Labour Party that you can respect? No, my dear fellow, nothing. Yeah. I mean, that's a rather extraordinary comment for somebody to make, isn't it? I mean, the uh, welfare, the National Health Service. Quinmore was the epitome of the old Welsh Liberal who regarded the Labour Party be the work of Satan almost. Why do you think he had such antipathy towards him? From his background, it was an anti-Labour stance. Also, I think his father and he himself had suffered a great deal of bullying from the Labour Party in Carmarthenshire. And there were many, many old scores. He was a lovely man, but um, he had uh, marks on his back from those experiences. After you left school, you went to university, and you trained to be a solicitor, didn't you? Yes, I did. Yes. So how did that come about, or where, where were you practising? I qualified as a solicitor, and then I went to, to Wrexham. I had stood in Wrexham as a candidate. I went up there, I think, to do some political work, and then quite certainly found myself offered a job as an assistant in a firm, and ultimately, as a, a few months later, as a partner in a firm. And that was it. Then I met my wife, and uh, got married and lived in Wrexham for many years. And what did you specialise in as a solicitor? Criminal work in the, in, in the main, yes, yes. I did a fair bit of advocacy as well, and... Um, Ultimately, I went to the bar, but uh, I enjoyed my work as a solicitor, yes. It was an old country practice. Many of our people were farmers and so on, and um, it was an old firm that celebrated its centenary, I think, a few years after I joined them, <laughs> Lloyd and Emmett Williams. Now, of course, it was in 1966 that you became a Member of Parliament, yes. a Labour Member of Parliament for your home county of Cardiganshire. How did you get selected for the candidacy in Aston? I had only quite recently joined the Labour Party, about um, six, nine, ten months previously. I had never pretended to be anything other than Labour in my basic politics. But um, in those days, if you were implied, there was antipathy toward the Labour Party as, as an institution. Although I'd, I'd never condemned Labour as Labour such, there had been some clashes from, from time to time. But I had immense respect for the Labour Party as a force for change and for justice. And uh, to me, there is no possibility of building anything worthwhile in Wales, unless you manage to fuse those two things. 
First, the concept of Wales as a land and nation. And secondly, the immense power of the Labour Party as the party of Wales still. One without the other will not do. So in terms of being selected to stand as a candidate, uh, Elliston, at the time when you joined the party, yes. was there any promise given to you that you could get that seat? Oh, no. 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 I, it didn't cross my mind that I'd be a member of parliament when that happened. It all happened very, very quickly. And it was one of these situations, as, as I said, some of combination of wind, moon and tide, that you might only get once in, in 50 or 100 years. It just happened. Everything fell into place just at the right time and in the right way. So how did you come to be the candidate? Well, I, I had left um, Plaid Cymru in the, in the summer of 65, and uh, I was appointed a candidate, I think, somewhere about February, March of 66, and scraped home to win the election then. Yes. Chris, I think the, um, the election was in the March of 66, wasn't it, as I recall? It was a, something of a landslide for Harold Wilson. Yes, it was. Because he'd, he'd got elected initially in October of 1964. That's right. Very yes. narrow majority. That's right. That's and right. then Labour was doing well in the polls. Yes. Mm -hmm. So Harold Wilson decided the time was right to go to the country. Yes, this was the flood tide of his popularity. That's right. Yes. Mm. And we, did you see yourself as a, as a supporter of Harold Wilson at the time? Only incidentally. It, it really was a question of... Were you going to concentrate on Welsh politics in a narrow Welsh context, for or against Plaid, for or against a Welsh Parliament, or were you going to have a look at politics outside Wales? It was a case, I think, of having to do the two things together. That uh, I still believe that you have to have that fusion of um, the concept of Welsh nationhood in its pure form and of the rights and obligations of Wales as a nation that you get from Plaid Cymru. And at the same time, the force and power and authority that you have from the Labour Party to be able to bring that about from time to time. One without the other is useless. Because at the time when you were joining the Labour Party, it was by no means universally the case that all of its members uh, and members of parliament were in favour of devolution you, you or can say that government. Again. You can say that again, yes indeed. So weren't you swimming against a bit of a tide at that time? I mean, you, you were joining at a time when George Thomas was in his heyday. Well, there were strong advocates for Welsh nationhood. Cledwin, Gronwy Roberts, William Priest Davis, Jim Griffiths uh, and others, Tudor Watkins, for example who'd been loyal throughout the years. Some of them had indeed been wrapped over the knuckles from time to time for it. When the Labour Party was um, exercising pretty dictatorial powers uh, over the Welsh interests. But things had improved very greatly by the time I got there. And although there was the odd moan, it didn't come to anything at all. So at that time, in 1966, there was no referendum in the offing? 
Because that wasn't until 1979. True. And I had the uh, vast misfortune of leading that uh, ill-fated campaign for a Welsh Parliament. We got beaten four to one. That's right. Thoroughly thrashed. But of course, by that time, you were no longer a Member of Parliament. No, no. At the time when you were elected in 66, did you see that you were embarking on what would be a long-term political career? No. The tenure was bound to be short, so that one had to make the most of it. Why did you think it was going to be short? Well, because the, the improbability of remaining a, a Labour member in Cardiganshire for, for very long. Cardiganshire has an old conservative tradition of liberalism, if you get me. So, um, yet you didn't see yourself as uh, moving forward and becoming perhaps a minister or anything like that? No, I, th- I think that was quite a fluke when it happened. I, I was a junior minister for a couple of years in, in the Home Office. Yes. How did you enjoy that? Very much so. Wonderful department. Yes. And what specifically were your responsibilities? Police and uh, all sorts of other things, but mainly day-to-day police, yes. And law reform. Criminal law reform. Criminal law reform. Yes. Did you think there was a need for criminal law reform at that time? Well, in, in fact, I was involved in taking the theft bill, uh, 1968, through, through Parliament. Yes. The theft bill? Yes. Ah. And what, fact, what were the... Uh, I'm not sure that I didn't have the subriquet Morgan the Pinching <laughs> <laughs> at one time. And what were the, what were the main tenets of that uh, particular bill? It tidied the law up. The, the law had been based upon... The uh, Larceny Act of 1916, which in turn was based upon the Larceny Act of 1861, believe it or not, very, very little change. So it needed complete refurbishment, or, or, or complete restructuring, really, yes. So in your period as uh, a minister, you you were overseeing that bill? Yes, I was. Yes, I took it through the House, yes. And is that something you're proud of? Very much so, yes, yes. I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. Okay, we've now moved from the committee room where we started the interview. Uh, We were chucked out by some officials, uh, unfortunately, but never mind. And we have eventually, after trying to record on the terrace... Uh, but found it was too noisy, ended up in the staff canteen, or one of the staff canteens, where you will perhaps occasionally hear the clinking of glasses. So, from your experience as a family law judge, did you draw any general conclusions about the state of society? Yes. There has, I think, since the end of the Second World War, being a steady progression of the disintegration of the nuclear family. It's perceptible and I think inevitable. But um, the institution that we now call the family is very different from what it was 50 years ago and 100 years ago. And what sort of impact has that had on social mores or or the society as a whole? The idea of children being brought up in a a disciplined, civilised groove that's part of the family, all that has changed. 
enormously. I'm not saying that people are wild and, um, and untamed. That is not, not the case. But um, certain mores, which people thought were going to be with us forever and ever and ever, have changed enormously in that period of time. And you observe this regularly in your position as a yes. family law judge? Yes, indeed. Yes. Did you retain your political interests during the period when you were in the law? Oh, yes, certainly, yes. Yes, within, within uh, limits, of course. As a judge, one didn't appear on platforms or anything like that. And uh, <laughs> I'm very much the same sort of political animal that I was with a small p. <clears throat> and how did you come to get your peerage? Well, now then, I became a peer 37 years ago. A long, long time ago. And uh, my mentor was Elwyn Jones, a very close friend. Who was the Attorney General? The Attorney, and, and I was in his chambers for, for many, many years. And uh, he desperately wanted me to become a peer, to be a, to play a part in, in this place. Um, I was much too young to be. I was in 47, 48, I think. The House of Lords is really an old people's home, and, and I was. Not too young for it. So, when you became a peer, did, were you a working peer? Yes. Yes, to a large extent. So you took part in debates? V very much so. Yes, I was a, a front bencher, and um, not holding any massive briefs, but I was never off the front bench for something like eight or ten years. And wasn't there a period when you actually left the Labour Party to become a crossbencher? Yes and no. Uh, I, uh, I never left the Labour Party in, in that sense, but I became a judge. And when I retired from the bench, whereas I could, of course, have gone back to the Labour Party, but that would not have been the thing to do. As a former judge, I joined the crossbencher, but regard myself still very much a Labour peer. I vote to the Labour Party, I speak for the Labour Party. And uh, so that rather mechanical, cosmetic phenomenon. But I thought the proper thing to do as a former judge, yes. And you have warm relations with the Labour Party people? Very much so, yes. I vote to them and they regard me very much as being on their books. And what do you think about the changes that have occurred in the Labour Party over the last couple of years? Because they have been quite momentous, haven't they? You've now got uh, Jeremy Corbyn as the leader, and at one time it would have been considered absolutely inconceivable that he could have attained that position. We have a situation at the moment when there does not seem to be, to be any credible leadership in either party, Tory or Labour. At such a momentous occasion that no dramatist could ever have overemphasized, writing, say, 10, 20 years ago, there is no leadership, there is no vision. And as the book puts it, where there is no vision, the people perish. And I know that you're very exercised about the prospects of the United Kingdom and Wales in particular as a consequence of Brexit. Well, uh, I... Uh, I'm, of course, very conscious of Wales as a land and nation, very conscious of the need for Wales to have a definite distinctiveness, otherwise it should disappear altogether. 
and I don't see it as just devolution. Devolution is um, very much a case of reducing the um, area of decision to the very lowest level possible. And uh, it's more than that. When you deal with, with nations, then it's, it's something very different. When you deal with devolution, the question you ask is, how much has been transferred? How much has been conveyed? When you're dealing with nations, you ask a different question, how much has been withheld? That's the way I see it. Now, you say that's a bloody-minded Welsh attitude, but that might... And, of course, that has... That has been uh, brought to the light, hasn't it, in the context of Brexit with the so-called power grab which yes. has gone on, where the UK government has decided that it's going to grab these many powers that well, would, in the normal course of events, have come to Wales. It begs the question, what has the government decided? It's two years now since we voted. Nothing has happened. No thought process has been described. No public arguments have taken place, uh, public debates have taken place at all, at all, at all. We've just drifted. It's unbelievable. Two years on, we're no nearer to understanding what Brexit is about, or what the, what the possibilities are. Brexit will be, at the end of the day, what the 27 wanted to be, not what we wanted to be. And how exactly that will affect Wales and the, the other nations, I'm not sure. So what you're saying essentially is that the United Kingdom is at the mercy of the European Union in this context. Totally so, yes. How could it be otherwise? You don't expect the one unit to dominate the 27? No. And yet, the Brexiteers would have us believe that the UK has a very strong negotiating position. And the 27 say, watch it. Perfidious Albion. They haven't changed. And what do you think is likely to happen at the end of this very Britain torturous situation? This sceptered isle, this throne of kings, this jewel set in the Silver Sea. But um, one can never overemphasize the insularity of Britain. You, you don't live as an island unconquered for a thousand years without having built some carapace of independence and confidence about you. Do you get me? And I guess that uh, the existence in the relatively recent past in historical terms of the empire has fueled the belief that many people have that Britain is somehow a more powerful country than other European powers. We still live with the cobwebs of empire. And from time to time, you're reminded of it. Especially when England plays in the Football World Cup. And people say, we taught them football. And you can feel the Kipling rings about the lesser breeds without the law. There's that feeling somehow that we, our imperial past hasn't totally disappeared. I, I as a Welshman, am very conscious of this. I believe that in a very decent sort of way, because you just can't compare things in, in a crude way at all, but in a very decent sort of way, the English really believe they are the master race because they 
at one time ruled the whole world. And that's within living memory, in a sense. You know that it, there is a memory that runs for several generations of what people have heard others say and others have heard what they said in time. And the attitude that they, uh, that they possessed. <clears throat> no, it'll take a long time, I think, for Britain to work out its imperial past. Good and bad. Some of it is dreadful. Imperialistic, cruel, exploitative, murderous. But some of it is splendid. For all that you can say against imperialism, Britain is the best empire that the world ever saw. What makes you say that? In terms of justice and public administration and the concept of the rule of law. And I say that as a, as a Welshman, with, um, with some bile in my throat. <laughs> so, I suppose this hankering after an imperial role played a significant part in the Brexit vote. It must have. It must have, yes. And in terms of the constitutional settlement for Wales, the recent development in which we had this uh, so-called power grab yes. suggests that the tide may be turning against self-government. What can Wales do to combat that? The essence of it all is the fact of Welsh nationhood and the consciousness of Welsh nationhood. Ignore it and you do so at your peril. Despise it and it will turn back and wound you. But um, you cannot take it for granted. Nationhood can very often be a sleeping giant. And that is true of Welsh nationhood so often. I may have a romanticized, I'm sure I do have a romanticized idea of the nationhood of a small nation. But you don't need a lot to touch the quick in Welsh nationhood. And um, the best thing we could ever have would be oppression. <laughs> that would stimulate us. <coughs> Isn't yes. one of the problems that in Scotland... The, the fundamental lack of an oppressor at the moment. Yes. Yeah. In Scotland, the SNP has done extremely well um, electorally. Yes. And a few years ago now, 2014, there appeared to be a realistic possibility that um, the independence vote could win and um, there are those who argue that it was only Gordon Brown's intervention um, in the week leading up could, to the could well have been so it was a close run thing that was a close run thing yes. Northern Ireland of course there is uh, always the fear of a return to terrorism Very much so, yes. but Wales doesn't have the same kind of leverage no, in that no, sense does it no, so no. I mean are we just at the mercy of our larger neighbour to our east the sleeping giant that is Wales is sleeping very, very heavily. And um, it will probably take a nuclear explosion to, to wake him up or her up, whichever gender the giant belongs to. And yet it's there. If you showed that you despised Welsh nationhood and that you were determined to insult it, it would very soon rise and smack you. 
in terms of getting the move towards self-government back on track, what do you think politicians in Wales need to do? Well, uh, if you think of it in terms of constitutional geometry, it's very attractive to say the area of decision should be with the smallest, most local unit possible. The um, European idea of subsidiarity. subsidiarity is exactly the same as devolution. But in Welsh terms, in national terms, it's, it's something different again and um, more significant. What kind of constitutional change would you advocate? The idea of a federal concept is difficult because England represents 82% of the joint population and the imbalance between England and the three other members is, is massive. But um, I still consider it possible that you could have some sort of system whereby you had two chambers, possibly a new role for the House of Lords. How would that work? It would work then as the regional chamber. So you'd have representatives from Wales, Scotland, yes. Northern yes. Ireland, for as long as Northern Ireland remains part of, of the UK? Yes. A totally different role for the... For and the England? Lords. How many would they have? Well, it seems to me that um, 50 would be the right equivalent for them. But can you see them agreeing to that, given the no. dominating no. No. population that they've got? They're not going to agree to that, are they? That would be the second chamber, yes. This would be the second chamber? Yes, yes. Which would have the same powers as the House of Lords, or if they were elected? Would they be elected, these people? There would have to be some concept of a popular mandate. Otherwise, you, you just couldn't justify it at all. On the other hand, if they were elected in exactly the same way as the House of Commons, that again would be totally useless. So possibly PR at a different date from the election of the other place, and um, possibly again some sort of concept such as they have in Ireland, in the Republic. When you have constituencies of interest, farmers, rural affairs are one tier. The professions, the trade unions, so on, there are five altogether, and each one has its quota uh, votes. Some sort of something like that might, might be the, the way to do it. It's almost a form of expanded syndicalism. Yeah. Yes, you're dead right. You're dead right. So the constituencies would be sections of society rather than geographical entities? Yes, communities of interest rather than geographical communities. Yes. That's a big change from what we've got at the moment, isn't it? Very true. We've been utterly tied to the geographical pattern. Yes. And what prospect do you think there is of uh, persuading the conservatives with both a small C and a big C to go in that direction? Looking at it historically, the pattern that we have of local government is a pattern that was set down in the 19th century. 
the Local Government Act of 1888 gave you the first county councils in 1889. And that is the pattern that we still have. You can't tell me that we that it isn't a situation that cries out for change. So this is we're talking about local government now? Yes. yes. How would you reform local government? I've been tempted to look a bit at the French system, whereby local government would be a devolution of central government on a local basis. Do you know what I mean? In other words, that you devolve various prefectures. And what you have in Brittany is the devolved prefecture from Paris. That to me seems to be a healthy concept, but I've never heard anybody who supports it. So how would that work in practice? It probably wouldn't. <laughs> but the idea, how would the idea work? What's the story about, um, who is it now, the uh, Irishman who'd been a member of the cabinet who said, um, we know it will work in practice, but how the hell will it work in theory? <laughs> who, who was it? Oh, Conor I can't Brian. remember. Conor Cruz O'Brien. Conor Cruz O'Brien. <laughs> Who was a, a, a great journalist. Oh, splendid, oh, splendid, splendid man, yes. As well as the Minister of Culture of the yes, Irish Republic. Yes, for a short period, yes. Yes. Yeah. I have no clear idea at all how one reformed the House of Lords. It has to be reformed. At the moment, it's um, a wholly ridiculous situation. But if you read the Parliament Act of 1911, the preamble to that act presupposes that quite soon, any day now, there will be changes. And that was 1911. 107 years ago. 107 years ago. That's it. And there haven't been any major changes. I mean, they have this ridiculous situation now, don't they, where um, hereditary peers can participate in by-elections where the only people who can vote are hereditary peers. I mean, what sort of nonsense is that? Well, it was a sop, I suppose, to... Was it... Um, what's her name? Jay. Jim Callaghan. Baroness Jay. Yes. She, she... Peter Jay's wife. That's right. She concocted... Margaret Jay. Margaret Jay. She concocted some formula. I, I wasn't here at the time. It, it was when I was playing judicial truant. And um, quite suddenly, she sprang it on them. Say, all you hereditaries must go. All save 92. And there were about four or five hundred of them. And they meekly trooped out like sheep to the slaughter. Yes. Nobody quite knows exactly how that happened. And yet now, do you think that the atmosphere in the Lords has changed since that reform? And has it changed for the better? When the old hereditaries were here, I came to the house actually 37 years ago difficult to believe and um, so that would be in 1981 I think yes that's right 81 many many of the old hereditaries were bonkers bats utterly bonkers there was an old boy who had a, a double title I can't remember his name now it'll come back to me and his people had had estates in the West Indies and all the time, was how these chaps could all write till they got on the ganja. Oh, yes. And everything ended up with the ganja. 
Cannabis. Well, yeah, absolutely, yes. Yes, the ganja. <laughs> well, he was, he was totally bad. He'd speak he for hours and hours. He was talking about uh, the ganja. Yes. I can remember a, a marvellous occasion of um, an old boy who was speaking on the reform of the British North America Act of 1867, which set up the Canadian Constitution. And in fact, made it an absolutely independent constitution. It only needed a little bit of thinking to make it totally independent. But um, we were debating that. And this old boy was 100 years old, and he was bonkers. And he was c quoting huge chunks of the Bible and cookery recipes and everything else. You've never heard such rubbish in your day. But he was going on and on and on. There is no chairman, as you know, in the House of Lords. There's only one way that you can stop that, and that is for the whips to move a motion that the noble law be no longer heard, which is a very disgraceful thing to do. And nobody wanted to do that, and yet we're rapidly approaching that situation. Cledwin Hughes, that lovely man, was the leader of the opposition. When he saw that the government whips were about to do something, this chap was up at the top of the gangway. Cledwin walked up to him put a hand on his shoulder and said, would you like to have a cup of tea? And he said, capital idea, my dear friend. And they walked down arm in arm. Now, that's the House of Lords at its best. Or it's but, worse, I might say. Well, because the, the whole situation is absurd, isn't yes, it? Yes, I know. But the, the sheer friendship of it and the chivalry of it. Capital idea, my dear friend. Yes, I can see them doing it now. The House of Lords is the second biggest legislature in the world after the Chinese China. People's Assembly. I don't give a damn about that. But isn't it ridiculous? Yes. But as W.S. Gilbert says, the House of Peers did nothing in particular and did it very well. But you've been here for 37 years. Yes. What have you achieved during your 37 years, Alastair? Nothing. Nothing? No. No. I can't think of any campaign that I've waged or anything that I've stood for that's been successful. No. What I've achieved in a personal sense is somehow or another to have that worm's eye view of lifting the carpet and it gives you some idea of what British society is about and has been. Do you know what I mean? Yes, but isn't that all terribly ridiculous, ultimately? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, are we still class-ridden? We need a second chamber. We will never do without a second chamber. We can never have a second chamber that elected, or certainly not elected the same way as the House of Commons. I would like to see some, some sort of body like the Irish Senate, whereby a person is a member for seven years and uh, with constituencies of interest, you know, where farmers, country dwellers and so on, one, one trade unit, another and so on, something like that. Ireland is a different kettle of fish to Wales, isn't it? To a large extent, yes, yes. And sometimes one says, thank God, and yet, on the other hand, 
If I wasn't Welsh, I would want to be Irish or Jewish, member of a small nation. I don't have anything against the English at all at all, but I'm not an Englishman. If I wasn't Welsh, Irish or Jewish. Thanks very much for listening to my podcast. It's the last one in Series 1, but we'll be back in September with Series 2. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.